Hi, my name is Katherine Hurley, and I'm the head op-ed editor at the Massachusetts Daily Collegian. You're listening to Nothing Unsaid, a new podcast from the Collegian op-ed section. This is a chance for columnists to share their written work as audio. You'll be able to hear firsthand opinions and analysis from UMass students on the latest campus issues and news from across the country. For our first episode, we're highlighting three columns published in September 2022. The first one comes from me, titled, Tell Him How You Feel. Write a letter to the editor this semester. On Valentine's Day, 1973, the Massachusetts Daily Collegian published 11 letters to the editor, short messages from students and employees of the University of Massachusetts Amherst commenting on the week's hottest topics. Looking back, students nearly 50 years ago were engaged in eerily similar issues as we are today. Is it unpatriotic to refuse to stand for the national anthem? Should marijuana be decriminalized? Are anti-abortion activists more concerned with policing pregnancy than fetal development? The big questions never quite go away. In 1973, George R. Nicholson asks, does this country really guarantee equality, independence, and respect to everyone, or are these rights restricted to certain groups of people? Today, we know the answer, but we can't stop asking until there's a solution. Others, like a group of roommates complaining of a cold dorm room, were personal with their letters, addressing individual yet universally experienced problems. A member of the science fiction club wrote in too. They reminded students that although a new co-op, People's Market, moved into their space, the science fiction club thrived in a new location. The Collegian isn't the same today, not only due to the death of printed letters to the editor pages, but also for a lack of engaged responses to campus issues. The near-complete halt of letters to the editor at the Collegian shouldn't be a surprise. Where students of the past might have written a response to something they saw in the paper that morning, students today react instantly on social media. News travels quickly, and stories that could have been critiqued across print editions are instead chewed up and spit out of the online discourse machine before details are ever confirmed. Submitting a letter to the editor isn't difficult, but it's certainly more work than penning a half-hearted, poorly worded tweet. By the time you've collected your thoughts, it's easy to feel like everyone else has moved on, but it doesn't have to be that way. Writing a letter is an opportunity to slow down, think critically, and take ownership over your opinions. It's a chance to respond to the Collegian directly and critique specific flaws in news coverage and framing. Debating campus issues, though divisive, is the only way to better understand one another. Whether you're a member of the Student Government Association or angry with one of its decisions, a student or administrator, your thoughts are an important addition to a broader understanding of the UMass community. Letters are a little old-fashioned, but that's cool, right? If you're a UMass student, alum, faculty member, or organization, we want to hear from you. Most importantly, here's how. Letters to the editor submitted to the Collegian must be fewer than 750 words, attributed to an author or organization, and emailed to editorial at dailycollegian.com. Letters should be written in response to news stories or columns published in the Collegian or underreported issues in the UMass or Amherst communities. Think about why you're the right person to respond and what your voice is adding to the conversation. A letter to the editor isn't going to change the world. It won't make everything right on campus or resolve the hurt caused by an unthoughtful opinion, but it might inspire someone to see things a little differently, and that's a pretty good place to start. So this semester, speak your mind and hold us accountable. UMass will be better for it. Hi, my name is Kelly McMahon, and I'm the head podcast editor for Daily Cleeton, as well as an op-ed columnist. 
Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Op-Ed Podcast, Nothing Unsaid. Today, I'm going to be talking about my latest article, The Case for Vanishing from Social Media Without a Trace, which essentially argues that if you need to take a break from social media, you shouldn't be afraid to just completely pull the plug. Thanks for listening. It's been nearly three years since I vanished from social media without a trace. I wiped all of my accounts and deleted them, a process these apps made tedious and nearly impossible. I was bracing for the shock of going cold turkey, but instead I felt as if some pervasive dopamine-induced static was finally lifted from my brain. Looking back on this moment, I find myself thinking, isn't it a warning sign that we're using the language of drug addiction to describe Instagram? But is social media really that bad? Maybe it's just me. The logic of probability leads me to believe that there must be at least a few people out there who maintain a healthy relationship with it. Social media and I don't mix. I'll admit that my experiences may not be universal, but in an age where engagement metrics and algorithms are the rulers of enterprise, it doesn't seem like social media is designed to be consumed in moderation. So if you've ever felt burdened or burned out by social media, no matter your age, I strongly urge you to pull the plug completely. I speak on this topic at a time when articles about social media's damaging effects on mental health are ubiquitous. As a Gen Z college student, I want to add my perspective to the discussion. I'm not one for using generational labels, but I cannot deny that I'm from a generation that came of age in the information era, or that my peers and I spent formative years absorbing the volatile feeds of politics, pandemics, and toxic trends. For years in high school, I consumed Twitter posts of hate and projected frustration. Misinformation and anxiety, especially from fellow teens, were rampant on TikTok, which just started to reach its influence and popularity peak with Gen Z at the time. Instagram was a sounding board of my peers and their everyday discontents. It was also a stage for unrealistic expectations, false advertisements, and constant comparison. A feedback loop of internal and external reactions is created, and I was most certainly dragged into that cycle. Of course, there were some good news posts, pastel graphics to remind me to drink water and think positive, and memes that made my friends and I cry from laughing, but these were mere specks in a corrosive content terrain that was slowly eating away at my mental health. Social media companies are hoping users will keep convincing themselves that they have the ability and self-control to maintain a healthy relationship with their apps. But pulling the plug is the best shot at giving yourself an honest break from social media's damaging effects. Psychologically, it's nearly impossible to strike a healthy balance when it comes to social media usage. But why is it so hard to find this balance? It's a two-sided issue. Algorithms are programmed to captivate our brains, and our brains are programmed to crave algorithms. It's a phenomenon described by Stanford psychologist Dr. Anna Lemke, who says social media manipulates the chemicals in our brains on a primordial level. Dr. Lemke states, quote, we're wired to connect. It's kept us alive for millions of years in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. Our brains release dopamine when we make human connections, which incentivizes us to do it again, end quote. Lemka also goes on to explain, quote, these apps can cause the release of large amounts of dopamine into our brain's reward pathway all at once, just like heroin or meth or alcohol, end quote. Well, from here, it's a downward spiral. Our brains have natural search and explore impulses, and algorithms are so darn optimal at feeding this impulse. Think of your own current feeds. The content is similar enough to what you've liked before, but novel enough to get you fixated on something. 
Lemka also says, quote, upon signing off, the brain is plunged into a dopamine deficit state as it attempts to adapt to the unnaturally high levels of dopamine social media just released, which is why social media often feels good while we're doing it, but horrible as soon as we stop, end quote. So we're faced with something unnatural that's essentially hacking the innate hardware of our brains, farming dopamine for views, and polluting the chemical balance that fuels our mental well-being. In response, many give themselves weekly or monthly social media detoxes. A month-long detox isn't a bad idea. Lemka explains, quote, a whole month is more typically the minimum amount of time we need away from our drug of choice, whether it's heroin or Instagram, to reset our dopamine reward pathways. End quote. However, if you've decided to commit to a long break from social media or quit it altogether, it is of utmost important to vanish. Facebook and Twitter accounts are sneaky. They give users the opportunity to deactivate their accounts for a set period of time, but not delete it altogether. If you do try to delete your account, you'll end up having to sift through various subcategories in the settings tab, searching for the delete account button in some inconspicuous location with an 11 point font. I recall having to Google how to delete your Facebook account and I'm supposed to be the teenage tech whiz. Social media platforms bank on the fact that you'll be wishy-washy about disconnecting, bargaining with the false necessity of your followings and FOMO, and only choose to deactivate, not delete your accounts. But taking time away without the need to apologize or explain your actions to others is truly the best way to detoxify. I strongly believe that the extremity of sudden silence is exactly what you need to jolt yourself out of the algorithmic thinking patterns. Pulling the plug is about giving yourself a chance to get some perspective. You'll be amazed at how quickly you can fill the time void created by social media's absence. Especially in the age of rampant misinformation, doom scrolling, and negativity, there is often no better solace than the complete quietness that you can create for yourself. Thank you for listening. Writing this article is really important to me because I feel like in my own relationship with social media that it sort of obscured other uh, opportunities and experiences that I could have had for more educational connections. And I feel like a lot of teenagers and young adults almost depend on social media for education about life. And I can see why it's easy to think that because all of this information is literally at your fingertips instantaneously on demand, but people have to remember that the information you're seeing on social media is essentially coming to you from, I guess, what could be called an algorithmic grapevine. Almost 80% of the things on your feed are probably advertisements, so any account that you follow that isn't a family or, or friend is probably trying to sell you something, whether that's a product or an idea. And even the family and friends that you follow, the things that they post aren't necessarily realistic. And I get it. I'm a marketing major. Um, I have come to realize since writing this article that some people cannot take time away from social media even if they want to because it's part of their job. It's necessary for networking. Uh, they have career tasks. They're social media managers. So I believe that if you have the rare and precious opportunity to quit social media outright, even just for a week or a month, try it just as a personal experiment. I think you'll be amazed with 
little things, even just how your mood changes or how you perceive other people or other things when your brain is no longer stuck in this search and explore mode, in this reward craving mode. So if you have the opportunity to pull the plug or vanish from social media, give it a try. And when you do it, do it fully and unapologetically. And here's Liam Rue reading his column titled, In Defense of Public Space. As the University of Massachusetts has continued to overadmit, common rooms have become one of the latest casualties of our chronic overcrowding after being converted into living space. Instead of accepting less students, or even building new housing to accommodate the larger student population, the university has decided that dorms' common rooms are disposable. More disappointing, it's frankly not surprising. Across the country, we have continued to ignore the importance of accessible and vibrant public space. The role of public space on this campus, and the consequences of not having enough of it, are something of a case study for how we should reinvest in it across the country. Designed as living room-sized lounges and study space for every floor, the common rooms and dorms were never meant to be makeshift housing. Not only do common rooms function poorly as dorm rooms for four people, but converting them into housing has robbed the rest of students of essential public space. I learned just how important such seemingly trivial rooms were last year as a freshman. Indeed, I met many of my best friends at UMass today in our floor's common room. It was the day after we all moved in to our freshman dorm. A bunch of us all set up at a table in the common room for a pickup game of poker. The next thing I knew, we were roving around campus together like a posse of juvenile delinquents, already bouncing inside jokes off each other and scheming new antics. We would still make new friends just by going around rooms in the larger lounge on the ground floor. But our third floor common room was our go-to place to hang out. Even though we would hang out in other people's rooms, it was so much easier to go to the common room since it was a space for everyone. With so little space in dorm rooms to begin with, common rooms serve both as important space for socializing as well as studying. As a shared space, it acts as neutral territory where everyone can meet up without invading each other's privacy, as can happen when you always hang out in someone's dorm room. It became a habit for my friends and me to drop into our floor's common room whenever we wanted company, when working, or just to hang out. It became a revolving door of friends working, chatting, playing poker, watching a movie, making ramen at 1 a.m., and so on. Having the common rooms in nearby study space is also all the more important since the university has stopped keeping the Du Bois Library open 24-7. Without abundant, open, and conveniently located space like a common room, we become more isolated from each other and have a harder time maintaining our friendships. When my friends and I still meet up in someone's room or our new dorm's floor lounge, it's harder without a centrally located common room we could all just drop into. The isolating effects of insufficient public space are even more apparent across America's towns and cities. The isolation in these communities is by design, as the car has allowed people to spread out and have their own private space instead of sharing with neighbors. In most suburban American communities, Instead of a central public space such as an open market, a plaza, or a park when people can gather, 
people are restricted to their own private yard. A crucial part of these public spaces' ability to bring people together is the spontaneity they create. Since what public spaces most people do have, such as malls or strip malls, or at least a 10-minute drive away, most Americans can't walk or bike anywhere they need to go. Without that shared space that everyone either passes by or actively goes to, you run into friends and new people much less. To make matters worse, those few gathering places available to most Americans are not really public. When people try to protest at a mall, for instance, the owners reserve the right to shut them down as they please, since they're private property. This makes lack of public space a hindrance, not only to community and business, but also to Americans' ability to protest and organize politically. While UMass's neglect of public space mirrors America's own, our need for improvement is nowhere near as dire as the country as a whole. After all, it was UMass's ample distribution of shared space, from common rooms to lounges to open green space, and even the basketball courts, that's made connecting with people so much easier. And rather than treat these gathering places as disposable, UMass needs to preserve common rooms as open public space, and not as last resort housing. The sense of community and innovation that abundant, well-placed public space fosters is one of the greatest strengths of UMass and other universities like us. It's up to us to decide whether we continue using space to bring people together or use it to keep people apart. While the rest of America has a long way to go, they're better off having UMass as an example of how to do it right. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Nothing Unsaid. We're excited to bring you more columns, personal essays, and spirited conversations this year. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Catherine Hurley, with help from Kelly McMahon. Thanks to Kelly and Liam for writing and sharing their columns this month.